Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I am your host, Adrian Lawrence. And right now, I bring you a guest who happens to be a climate change expert and the US president of We Don't Have Time. That's a tech startup and movement that leverages the power of social media really to hold leaders and companies accountable for climate change. I want to welcome in Sheta Chakraborty. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thank you so much for joining me. I know right now a recent CBS poll found that at least 30% of Americans know nothing at all about the Build Back Better Act. And a lot of people seem to, they really don't understand why we need it. Can you tell us why do we need this? Yeah, let's start with the big picture here. Let's put this in context, right? So. We have the planet warming and there's different implications for that. In the United States, it actually manifests as hurricanes, severe storm surges, droughts in the southwest of the United States, sea level rise on the west coast and the east coast. There's a lot of different impacts of climate change that are impacting our daily lives now. For Americans across the US, regardless of where you are, some version of the planet warming is going to be impacting your lives if it's not already, it's it's on the way. And so what this bill does is it really begins to think about future adaptation to this new reality of simultaneous impacts of climate change happening at the same time. So it's one thing that you have wildfires in the west coast. Uh, but what if that's happening at the same time as severe drought, as the same time as like another Hurricane Sandy hitting New York City, a major city and a financial hub in the US? How do we begin to think about these things simultaneously? And then we also need to think about how to build resiliency. So not just adapt to a new normal, but also prevent against really being faced with the worst outcomes of some of these simultaneous um, impacts of climate. And so the bill really puts in trillions of dollars to improve resiliency of the United States and to safeguard Americans. That's the point and purpose of it. And much of that requires reducing our carbon emissions. And so what that means is there were provisions in this bill that unfortunately have been, looks like will be pushed out despite their importance to ensure that the planet doesn't get that much warmer. And so these impacts aren't even worse than we're already experiencing. And one of those policies is known as the clean energy perform clean electricity performance program. And it looks like that's getting cut, which would have gotten our United States emissions goals down by 35% to be in line with the global standards that have been set by the Paris Accords and that we as a world will now see how we're doing at COP26 that's coming up this December. So I know that's a lot, but basically what this bill means for Americans is that we need to do our part to safeguard and make sure that we are aligned to what the rest of the world is doing so that ultimately we all win. Yes, winning is definitely important. And when winning is simply staying alive and being able to have our future generations continue to stay alive and to thrive, you'd really think that more people would be on board. But as I understand, this bill, the Build Back Better Act, has been called the most ambitious and transformative domestic policy agenda really since the Great Society and nearly centuries of what really has been done. But I also know that not everybody is on board, where we have US Senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin. Well, that he says he's afraid of inflation and that's why he won't vote for the package. What's up with that? 
Right, so that's really why we're seeing this. Uh, we're seeing the removal of this clean electricity performance program known as CEP. And that was so critical for the larger agenda to really, again, to meet those global standards of where the United States needs to be. So we are carbon neutral as a country by 2050, which supports other countries to also reach carbon neutrality, which ultimately keeps us below this threshold of warming that we know we don't wanna get past. Because at that, now we're talking about runaway climate change. And again, we're seeing the increased droughts, the increased wildfires, the increased hurricanes. This is not something we wanna see get even worse. We want to gain control of it now. So when you have Senator Manchin actually preventing some of these key provisions from becoming part of this bill that is due to pass, if this provision is removed, it's disappointing. But it doesn't mean that we won't be able to reach our carbon targets. So there's additional policies built into this bill that can still get us there. We can see carbon tax credits as long as that they are provided for a period of time that really incentivizes industries to transition to cleaner energy, to more renewable energy. That is something that along with the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, really pushing for air pollution reform and other policies that are all outlined in this bill. Together outside of this unique program that Joe Manchin and others are trying to cut, we can still see um, potentially our goals being met. So that's what that's what those in the climate space are still really optimistic about. Well, that is something, uh, even though we're not getting all of the benefits that we as citizens and as just individuals and human beings could truly, truly uh, just benefit from. And so I also heard you make a statement, a comment earlier that I'd love for you to explain. You had mentioned something about runaway climate change. What do you mean by that? Well, what we have to remember is that when we get sick, our bodies heat up very incrementally. And it doesn't seem like much, just a point degree in temperature increase in our bodies can give us a fever. Similarly, for the planet, if we see even a fraction of an increase in degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit, now we're talking about in a fever for the planet. And so if we see this incremental increase go up even a degree, so right now we are about a degree warmer than we were from pre-industrial levels from when we really started emitting as a globe carbon into the atmosphere and methane into the atmosphere, which has created a pollution blanket, if you will, that's just heating us and causing this fever. Fever, And so if we are able to prevent that one degree warming from pre-industrial levels to go no further than 1.5 degrees Celsius warming by the end of the century, then we still have a grip on this. If we get to two or higher, now you're talking about, again, what we're seeing in the United States. We're gonna see more of that. It's gonna be more intense wildfires and more intense droughts and more intense food scarcity issues and water scarcity issues, because all of these things are tied together. If you're in California, sea level has increased eight inches. And that is something that has significant impact on our agriculture. Two thirds of fruits and nuts for the United States comes from this region of the United States. One third of our vegetables comes from this region. So if you have increasing sea level, now you're talking about saltwater intrusion into these lands that will not only impact food production, it'll impact livestock. Now you're talking about animal agriculture. So there's these implications that we need to reckon with. And the reason that we need to protect our water access and accessibility and our food security, the way to do that is to just ensure that we don't get past that 1.5 degree warming 
by the end of the century. That's what scientists have globally agreed upon is going to keep us at some at a point where we can continue to survive and thrive. Yes, because that is something I think we all want and hopefully we'd all want for our future. But it does require an investment and we have to get people on our side. So what do you think that a lot of people who may not necessarily see the value in addressing climate change and trying to make these changes now in hopes of being able to reverse some of the damage done? What do you think that those people are missing when it comes to the climate crisis? Those that are still preventing policies like SEP from coming through through this bill, like Joe Manchin, um, and other communities like Wyoming and Montana that are really, uh, in, their interests are very much entwined with, with the fossil fuel industry. And we have to be sensitive to that. These are still millions of Americans and millions of communities that depend upon fossil fuels for their economy. But ultimately, this isn't something that is going to be sustainable. And there isn't a better, brighter and cleaner future with fossil fuels in it. So we have to be compassionate. We have to recognize that we're talking about people's livelihoods. At the same time, recognize the reality of a transition that is inevitable. If we don't move to cleaner energy, now we're talking about a future that nobody would wish on their worst enemy. We really need to make sure that we recognize that. And we do our part as the United States, as the leader of the global effort to combat this global temperature increase. And part of that isn't just really following through with our promises at home. This Build Back Better agenda needs to be implemented before COP26, before all the countries come together in Glasgow to talk about where they are in terms of reducing their carbon emissions and the role that they are playing to keep that temperature down. But we need to do that not only at home, we also need to support other countries and their efforts. As of right now, the United States has only committed a quarter of its promise in contributing to 100 billion, and we'll need much more than that, to help other countries to transition to a more renewable country as a whole. And we need to help support those countries to get off their uh, uh, to get off their needs of fossil fuels. And so that's also something we need to keep in mind is not just the US showcasing by example, changing what's happening domestically, but contributing to a bigger overhaul globally that we can really be proud of. Yes, that's something we should all be working toward for the better of humanity, not necessarily just one country. And so hopefully people will have more of that global mindset. And so I really wanna thank you for joining us. And can you please tell us where the viewers can learn more about We Don't Have Time? Yes, please check out wedonthavetime.org. It's an application that's totally free to download. It allows you to connect with climate concerned citizens around the world, share good ideas, scale solutions, because we're in this together. We don't have time, so we have to act now. Thank you so much for joining me, Shetha Shaparamporti. Thank you. Welcome back, it is TYT's A Conversation and it's still Adrian Lawrence. And this time we continue our conversation about the future and ensuring that it is a better place. And right now I'd like to welcome in school psychologist and licensed educational psychologist, Mr. Jeremy Green. Thanks for joining me, Jeremy. I hey, appreciate it, it's good to be in the space, good to be here. 
Yes, Jeremy. So when you and I had met, um, I was just blown away by what you do as a school psychologist, in part because I did not think about school psychologists throughout all of this COVID conversations and also critical race theory and whatnot, even though we're talking about schools. And so I know it has been a rough last year, last year and a half for you in the school system working with children. Can you give us a little glimpse of what that looks like? Yeah, sure. Like I always start off, I always say my opinions are my own, not representative of the organizations I belong to. And we always got to say that just to you know show respect and honor people. But in terms of this current you know situation, we're seeing a lot of stress. A lot of students are trying to readjust to being back in a full time space. So here in California, at least in the district I work in, we're back in person and we're back full time. You know, we're talking like 30 something students in a classroom setting, you know, trying to, you know, navigate the academic possible loss as well as those social etiquette losses as well. You know, once again, we've been out of this space in terms of in person learning for a year plus in some of our districts across the, you know, the United States and so forth too. So it's a lot of relearning, relearning behaviors, relearning how to, you know, navigate these spaces in terms of academic demands, you know, and just relearning to interact with each other, you know, as you know, humans trying to still navigate this ever, you know, evolving situation that we're still in, in terms of this pandemic and so forth. So a lot of my school psychology, you know, colleagues, you know, in my district, my social work colleagues, school counselors and so forth too, all we're doing is trying to inform people about the trauma, whether that's the trauma that you're experiencing with this current pandemic or the trauma that you bring into your space from your history and the consistent messaging that you're getting online and offline. We're just trying to you know, navigate these spaces and inform people about that trauma and empower our youth one day at a time. And what was something during COVID when you are still continuing trying to work with these children, but in a remote way, what was something that you think got really lost in the conversation when it comes to children's mental health during a pandemic type remote learning situation? Well, I think what gets lost in that kind of struggle is realizing the struggle that our families are going through as well. My district as you know, general, we've actually been pretty aware in trying to give childcare and trying to hire more additional social emotional supports and so forth too. But I can't say that for every district in the United States, right? So I think you know, some of the things that get lost is that how this is a new era that we're living in and to have expectations of the same old way of doing things. The grades, the assessments, the state testing, the mandates that come down in terms of attendance and things of that nature. That get lost from the top in terms of a systems approach and not really realizing that this is a great opportunity to reinvent this system. To really listen to students stories, their narratives, their history and really build community. Because once again, we're all going through this. We might be experiencing this pandemic in different ways and different you know, you know, know, kind of interpretations and so forth too, but we're all experiences this together, this new quote unquote normal. I hate that phrase, because what is normal? <laughs> it's a social <laughs> construct, right? But yes. at the end of the day, we know that that's the phrase that is being tossed out there. And we gotta be real respectful of the fact that our students are trying to navigate that with limited experiences to begin with in this life to begin with. Oh, you're definitely spoken like a licensed educational psychologist, that is for <laughs> sure. And so when it comes to um, kind of, if, if you can share, I don't necessarily know, what do you think have been the biggest challenges or things you've seen shift the most with children's concerns or experiences right now? Well, I think the concerns are still, you know, the, the safety issues. 
in terms of, you know, is it safe to be here? Is it safe to hug my friend? You know, trying to learn these new rules of etiquette in terms of wearing a mask in the classroom setting, not really, you know, embracing each other like we used to in terms of, you know, the student population, because we know our students, they want that love, they want to be shown that love and so forth too. So again, I think that's the kind of main adjustment that they're really trying to, you know, figure out. As well as still having to do all of these traditional measures, right? In terms of the assessments, in terms of if you're in high school trying to get into a four year university, in terms of just the social kind of aspect, both online and off. Those things did not slow down, even though the world shut down and slowed down, right? So again, it's just this kind of trying to navigate the understanding of one's identity when the world is constantly shifting underneath our feet. So what we try to do in terms of the spaces I work in, you know, the advocacy groups I work with, with our Natomas Black Parents Associations and so forth too, is really just having a space where our students can be them and talk about their feelings, empowering student voice. Because just because they might be a little younger doesn't mean that they don't have their own feelings, thoughts and opinions about what's going down in terms of that student voice model and so forth too. Yes, and you had spoken about being essentially affiliated with a black parent association. And in bringing that up, it automatically made me think about the push with critical race theory that we've seen across the nation with a number of schools not wanting to educate, essentially not even teaching critical race theory, which is largely a legal concept, but in teaching accurate history that reflects pretty much the history of our nation. So how is that being taken from your experience as a school psychologist? Well, the funny thing is, is like in the media, we're always gonna focus on the things that generate, you know, kind of those streams, right? So the majority of the families that I know, at least in Sacramento, California, one of the most diverse cities in the nation, you know, most of those families are okay about learning about history and so forth, right? Because this is our history. We can't lecture other countries about not sharing all their truths and histories and things like that. And then try to hide our own flaws, we're not infallible. We're only human, right? So again, in terms of the students and families that I've worked at, I haven't really seen a resistance, but I know that's there. And I think some of that is rooted in the need for control, the fear of the unknown, You know, to talk about what is basically essentially, like you said, a theoretical framework. It's not training students to be victims. It's not training students to feel like because I was born this particular race, I'm automatically racist or a bigot or discriminating on others based on whatever and so forth. It's a theoretical framework, right? And anything that you read about it talks about how these systems have existed since the beginning of time. All I tell people all the time, all you gotta look at is your political system. Look at the politics of it all, right, from the very beginning. And if you can say that the majority of the people who have been elected to these seats of power look and sound diverse, just like us on this Zoom or the Skype podcast right here, right? Then I gotta say, I don't know, man. If I look at this history, it's clearly obvious that there's been systems that have been put into place to keep certain people from certain backgrounds with certain beliefs in power and so forth. But again, I think some of that resistance, and I try to, you know, practice kind of Paulo Ferreira, Brazilian scholars, you know, you know, logic of dialogue. I try to engage with dialogue with some of these families and parents because, as a school psychologist, I'm here for all students. I'm not here to try to, you know, brainwash you, indoctrinate you, or whatever. I'm here to help your students live the best life that they can based on their own terms. And as long as they're happy, pro-social, and trying to do the best they can to contribute to others. And that's all we could want, you know, as someone speaking as not a parent, but having good models of parenting from my parents being from Louisiana, oldest of five kids, right? I feel like that any parent would want that. So I think there's a lot of fear based by people in power to try to elicit votes and money. 
But at the end of the day, the families that I've worked with, we haven't seen much of resistance at all. And that's a testament to the district, a testament to this city, this beautiful city that I live in and celebrating that inclusion and diversity. Yes, indeed. Uh, Sacramento is very, very much a flourishing city when it comes to diversity. And it's great to hear that you are not running into much pushback in terms of acknowledging history, learning and sharing history. As we need people to learn these things so that they do not repeat the behavior, yeah. but also so that they can understand how we got here. And yeah. I also know that for nearly a decade, you've worked with these students, families, schools as a school psychologist, and that you were really motivated to help motivate others. And I'm wondering what inspired you to want to go this route? You know, it's funny, I always wanted to be a psychologist. And so I remember being in elementary school, I'd have adults and you know my peers come up and tell me their story. They tell me about what they were going through, the stresses in their life, whether that's family, identity, any of the sort. And they would talk to me, you know, and then I would give them my opinion, you know, just making conversation. And the one thing both adults as well as people my age would say is that you give good advice, you should be a, you know, a psychologist. <laughs> and so from there, that stuck in my mind, but also having a father who's an educator as well, having a mother with a kind, gentle spirit, and having a grandmother, my dad's mother, Picola Hardneck Green, who just really believed in that word, that good word, regardless of what you define it as, that good word that we're all humans, and let's try to do right by people and give back. Like my dad would always say, you know, your rewards in heaven. If such a thing exists, like I said, we honor other people's beliefs and things of that nature, whether or not they believe in something like that. I say it doesn't hurt to try. Just like wearing masks and protecting ourselves like that, it doesn't hurt to try in terms of being the best I can be to people. So it all roots from there, childhood. And then learning about school psychologists and knowing that, like my father, who's a math professor up here, I got to do right by people and help people and inspire them as they inspire me as well. Yes, I know, and you have various inspirations out there, including a TED talk that you gave. We only have about a minute left, but I'd love for you to give people a sneak peek into what that TED talk conversation was about and where they can find it. Well, it's on the TEDx website, Shanghai American School is where I worked for two years from 2017 to 2019 as a school psychologist. It's about the transformative power of rejection. Because like we know, like a lot of our young people, they fear rejection, whether that's academic rejection, social rejection, or excommunication from their cultural or family background and so forth. So again, my TED talk was really to inspire these students and to remind these parents that rejection is a natural course of our DNA. It's primal, it goes back to our existence and so forth. But what do we do after that rejection is what really defines us moving forward, that resiliency. Fantastic, and can you please tell the viewers where they can find more information on you? Yeah, so I got a website, jeremydgreen.com. You can find me on YouTube on that TEDx, like I said, Shanghai American School, Jeremy D. Green, Transformative Power of Rejection. And you know, you can just find me in the space because I'm always floating around the world. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for joining us. Hey, much love. Appreciate y'all. Stay safe.